Welcome to the Cashflow Chronicles. I'm your host, Johnny Catani, and the founder of Catani Capital Group. For the last two years, I've been studying alternative assets and now help solve the problem of creating passive cash flow for creators, influencers, and busy professionals by bringing you five episodes a week of easy to understand education in the world of passive investing. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Cashflow Chronicles. I'm your host, John Katani, and I'm joined today by Tommy Brandt. Tommy is a recovering electrical engineer and data scientist turned full-time real estate investor. Based in Nashville, Tennessee, he started TB Capital Group as a tool to buy real estate with family, friends, and partners. He shows busy professionals how they can stop trading time for money so they can pursue passions and purpose by passively owning cash-flowing assets. His portfolio consists of Long-term rental, short-term rental apartments, invested in over 400-plus units, totaling $36 million in assets, also invested in 200-plus unit build-to-rent and self-storage fund. Tommy, welcome to the show. Jonathan, thank you so much for having me, man. I'm pumped to be here and uh, you know, hoping to add some value to your listeners. Absolutely. We're grateful to have you. You're also a uh, new member of Raisemasters, so... Uh, stoked to have you there as well. I've talked ad nauseum here. I'm I'm in my second year and uh, pretty much built my business kind of on the foundation of what Raise Masters teaches. So I am a huge advocate. And uh, so welcome to that group as well. But um, let's get into it. Uh, you are a recovering electrical engineer. I love that. Uh, give us your kind of Genesis moment when you discovered real estate and, and kind of the story there and uh, what's led you to where you're at now. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, a little bit of tongue in cheek, I'm still recovering, um, you know, electrical engineer, also data scientist there towards the end, but you know, in various capacities, I worked with 12 years with the same company. Um, you know, like I said, various capacities in product support sales, and then operations, business operations towards the end there, um, kind of more on the business analyst side and, uh, you know, all of those things are very transferable to you starting your own business. So kind of interesting how that happened. Um, yeah, I am based uh, in Nashville, full-time in real estate investing, you know, blessed to be able to say that um, just be, to be allowed to focus is, um, is just so um, critical to me in terms of starting my day and, and only having, you know, one thing to focus on, but yeah. And I, th I think it's a fair question of, you know, how did I get to this point? Uh, Jonathan. So it's a electrical engineer turned real estate investor. If for those who are watching the videos, like a very sharp career path. Um, but, you know, thankfully I, I kind of got shoved into real estate early on in my life uh, on accident, I would say. Um, but it, it was a, it was a fun time. So um, before I go too far, you know, I, I will say that I've I, probably like most of your listeners, I've given into the narrative. Um, and, and I believe that we're products of our own, of our environment. So I've given into the narrative that my parents taught me of go to school, get good grades, get a good job and, you know, work until you're 65 and then, you know, go look, fly into the sunset, you know, whatever happens whenever you turn 65. Um, and so I was going to, to college, you know, I went to Georgia tech to be an electrical engineer. I was looking for a summer job, you know, um, after my sophomore year and, uh, worked for a contractor who ended up being the primary contractor for one of the largest mobile home park operators in middle Georgia. So, um, they owned a thousand units between Macon and Warner Robins gray. 
are familiar with the middle Georgia market. And we did everything, everything you could think of uh, interior and exterior. And so we did everything from uh, landscaping to pressure washing, exterior uh, repairs, renovation on the inside, cleaning as well. And about 15% of the product that we serviced was post eviction. Uh, and so you're coming into these places and there's clothes, there's trash, there's still you know broken furniture, whatever they're kind of sabotaging the place on the way out. Um, utilities have been cut off for weeks. There and you're playing the, the game of who's going to open up the fridge, not it. And, uh, you know, fun, fun times. Right. And that, does, that did two things for me in life. Uh, one was that built a lot of character, you know, <laughs> and uh, the, the, second, the second thing I'll say was that gave me the, the, the ability to uh, have the vision of the finished product, right. To understand what is it going to look like after all the clutter is done, you know, whenever you're walking into it. Um, so if you can get past that, kind of first emotional buildup and then, um, you know, know what it's going to look like, then that's, it's super powerful. And so, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of work went into there. Um, fast forward a couple of years, I've graduated from college. It's 2011. I bought my first investment property. Really, it was just a, a it was a house, um, uh, that was the, the cheapest in the neighborhood. Um, it was a four bed, two bed, uh, four bed, two bath. It had an attached garage, had an in-ground pool, pool houses in the back and, and, Jonathan, doesn't it sound great? You know, <laughs> it was a short sale and uh, let's peel back some of the layers. Uh, so there was a leak in the roof over the garage. So there was a, a nice sag and the drywall ceiling there. Uh, they had 15 foot joists instead of 12 foot joists. So we had to resupport the house structurally in different places. The pool was solid black. Uh, the pool houses had no foundation, so they could have blown over at any time. We, we literally just pushed them over and that was it. Um, and, and every square inch needed to be updated from 1979. And, and so that was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a 20 something year old and I wanted an outlet of energy. So I kind of asked for it and I didn't really have a mentor at the time. So I'm wandering blindly, probably overpaying for certain projects, not prioritizing things accordingly. Um, but you know, it was a slow live and flip and I rented a bedroom out to a colleague at work. And so, um, he was paying for the mortgage while I was saving up every year for all the projects that took place. Um, and you know, while I'm doing that, I'm obviously still working full-time as an engineer, um, coming home to this, you know, on, on night and weekends, uh, it does, does something to your, your motivation every now and again, it's very cyclical as far as let's get this project done. This is like, you come home to it and you're like, I don't want to do anything. So you, you become a victim of your own success there. But around two or three years after owning the, the property, I get a letter from the city and they said, um, this is what we think your house is worth. You know, congratulations. You're now paying this new tax bill based off of the appraisal. And, and it was over twice what I paid for it. You know, and um, really there's, I, I felt everything in terms of emotions, you know, at that moment, because it's like, all right, um, on one end, I'm ecstatic, right? Because it's like, all right, I'm 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 justified in buying in the neighborhood that I bought in. I'm justified in investing all this capital into the renovations and things like that. Um, and, you know, I'm just enjoying this equity bump. But on the other side of the spectrum, if I mind, you know, the 25 years of go to school, get good grades, get a good job. Um, you know, the, the benefits from that in terms of salary, take home 401k contribution bonuses and all this stuff. Um, the equity in the house that I had just gained over three years had surpassed everything that, you know, the previous 25 years, uh, the results of that. And so, um, I would say that, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, I was devastated because my, my reality had been shattered, right? The foundation to, to what I believe to be the truth uh, of me, you know, being in that environment and me being the product of it. 
um, it was, it really made me rethink some things. Um, and, and I didn't re- realize it right away, but once I came across rich dad, poor dad, my mindset around money really started to change. Um, you know, I, I started to rethink some things that if you follow Adam Grant, so I was rethinking what I thought to be true. I started to ask questions and I started to ask questions like, you know, what's the difference between a person that had, that makes a hundred thousand dollars a year and the person that makes a million dollars a year. And it's not time. You know, everyone's got that same 24 hours in a day. So I started to say, okay, well, you know, maybe, maybe I could realign my goals or or reset my goals. Maybe I don't need to wait until I'm 65, uh, you know, and just hope that my retirement is enough to live off on. What if I'm more deliberate about that? Maybe if I'm 55 or 45, what does that look like? And so I started to set these goals for myself. um, And then I started to have more of an investor mindset. So we liquidated that property. I'm going to fast forward here a little bit, but we liquidated that property, bought a couple single family homes, tried being a landlord, sucked at it, hired a property manager, started to find what, where, where my superpowers were, uh, what, what team members I needed, um, bought a short-term rental, started investing passively in apartment syndication, getting passive income that way. Um, and then, you know, more, more speculative stuff like build to rent and, and then more cash flow heavy stuff like the self-storage fund that that took me to. And so, um, and then also we syndicated our first deal successfully last November, about six months ago. Wow. That's quite the story. You've, uh, you've done it all experienced it all. Uh, obviously felt all the ups and downs, of course, you know, still more to come as, as, uh, this industry always, uh, seems to deliver lessons whenever, yeah. whenever we feel like we, you know, you don't want them, but, uh, turns out you need them. So, uh, so that's awesome. I love that. And, uh, you know, that is the power. And, and I love that you got started like that because, you know, so many people get deterred, you know, especially obviously here we are, right. We, we focus primarily on commercial real estate and, you know, so many people want to go straight to commercial real estate and I can't blame them. Right. But it's okay to start in that single family, the house hack, you know, a duplex, whatever it is, right. It's okay you know, to take two, three years and build up. And, and I love that um, it's led you and now you've got an, an awesome portfolio. So let's kind of get into it. Let's start first with your first successful syndication. Um, if, if you want to uh, go ahead and uh, tell us about that. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, I did skip over the part where I am aggressively consuming information through podcast books, um, articles, and then the, the networking component of it is definitely not passive. So I'm going to meetups, conferences, webinars. Um, so there, there's a lot that I, I had to figure out that wouldn't work for me, um, before I find out what did work for me. And so, um, yeah, whenever I went, I went full-time with the intent of, you know, building a business around multifamily syndication. So it was 14 months before we had syndicated our first opportunity, Um, and, uh, you know, we were under contract on another one, but, you know, just last year, throughout some numbers, we looked at over 200 deals, put out 70 offers, one under contract on two and closed on one. Um, and so that's, that's your one, you know, and that's probably not atypical for a lot of your listeners unless they, um, unless they have just a mentor that's trying to shovel them into deals or something like that. That's people doing them favors if they've got good connections, but, um, that was just, you know, being you know, straight, straight networking and trying to get involved. So, um, it was tough. It was tough. And, uh, that was, um, 2022 for your listeners here. So, um, you know, very competitive time to get into real estate. Yeah. As far as the deal that we did syndicate, the the one deal that we did successfully syndicate last year, I think uh, Ken McElroy did too. So I'm, I'm halfway there. Um, <laughs> as far as the deal that we did syndicate last year, the, um, you know, that was, uh, that came to us and there's, there's so much power in the follow-up nowadays because there's deals falling apart left and right at the closing table. People, you know, 
sellers getting drawn into the the buyers that are offering more than asking, that sort of thing. And then, you know, oh, by the way, we don't have our capital stack lined up on the closing day. So we got to bail. And so this was same scenario where, you know, the we were not the best and highest offer. Um, you know, it went to the closing table and I think we were second or third. And uh, you know, it didn't it didn't transact, it didn't go through successfully. And then the broker came back to us and said, Hey, you know, is, you know, do you, are y'all still interested? You know, what are you looking like? And, and it seems like every week last year, the interest rate was going up. So we're like, okay, well, we need to pivot a little bit with our offer. Um, let, let's start to ask some more questions. You know, found out that they had an assumable loan. Um, they had seven years left on the term. They had just ran out of the, the IO period. So all that sweet music was over, but, um, you know, it's still a suitable loan, right? That would have saved them prepayment penalty. And and they could, you know, with that, they were able to sacrifice a little bit on price for us. So, um, yeah, we, we ended up making things work. So we bought 49 units in Louisville at uh, 3.55. Um, wow. So that's around 72 a door, um, you know, um, mostly two, two bedrooms, um, but there were some one, one sprinkled in the mix as well. And so pro forma rents of around 925 without utilities. So, um, yeah, that was, that was a, um, a pretty sweet deal, especially whenever you look at, you know, comps, what is stuff trading at? It's probably high seventies, low eighties, um, most of the time there. So just buying on a good basis, um, got a strong cash flow position. You know, we, we came into that at 57% loan to value. And, you know, on, on paper, if you're bringing more capital to the table, right, that lowers the returns, but it was still within the spectrum that we underwrite for, um, you know, which is a hundred percent return on investment within five to seven years. So, um, it still, still fit the, you know, what we, what we targeted. Um, and I'm not offering to sell securities. We'll, we'll put a little disclaimer in there whenever I talk about target returns and stuff. Um, but you know, uh, it was a strong cash flow position. Um, we could have put supplemental debt on there and really juiced the returns. But I think just knowing that we are on the brink of, you know, probably some economic uncertainty in the space, it's not a risk that we really wanted to take. We didn't need to take it. It just would have sweetened the pot. So um, it is a strong cash flow play. And, um, you know, the break even occupancy at the end of year one is going to be high 60s, low 70s. And so um, as we're seeing vacancy trend upwards, you know, we feel really good about our, our strong, uh, our low leverage position, relatively speaking. That's awesome. Yeah. You made a lot of really great points there, right? Uh, you know, staying low leverage, uh, extremely smart move, obviously, as you mentioned in this kind of ever-changing economic environment, interest rates, I believe are going up again tomorrow is, is what seems to, to yeah. be where we're headed. Uh, so you made the right decision and ultimately, you know, investors, do you have a lot of new investors? Was it tricky kind of help get them to understand? It, it can be challenging that I've noticed on the capital side, you know, helping people understand why 6% is a, is a, is a good return right now. And, and, you know, why we're not going to see 8% for a while and why the LTVs are low. Is that something you had to kind of navigate? For us, um, we, we did have a lot of uh, first-time syndication investors on that one, and uh, I think most most people were, I guess, they're they're either drawn to, and this is different for for every investor, right? But you know, some are just like, you know, any cash on cash, you know, that's great, right? They're, they may be, have a more of like a development mindset of like, hey, I'm going to give you my money, and I'm not going to see it for three to five years. Um, so there's some people that were, you know, like, oh, I'm I'm going to get cash flow within six months. Like, 
all right, you know, great. That, that's super exciting. Um, and then other people that are just like, you know, I, I just really want to know my internal rate of return, you know, show me that and, and I'll be on my way. I don't, I don't expect anything for five years, but just show me that it's healthy returns. But, um, it's, I think a lot of people surprisingly were, were drawn to the debt on the property. Um, so we had, uh, you know, it was like 4.7% interest rate and they're comparing it to what's in the market. And they're like, holy cow, like you can still get this type of stuff, even in today's climate. Um, so there, there's a lot of people drawn to just the the underlying debt for the property. And so I love that. Yeah. If, if an investor is asking about debt, you know, um, you know, that's a pretty sophisticated, typically a sophisticated investor, um, who understands right the the debt market and why that that interest rate is uh, is so strong, and uh, so that's awesome. So have you guys made first distributions? Um, obviously, with the low leverage, you know you don't have you're not at any risk with the changing interest rate environment. So mm-hmm. have you made your first round of distributions? Or are they coming up? Is everything um, on track? Yeah, we slated to do it uh, within six months. And so May 1st will be our first distribution. We actually just got done issuing K1. So, and we're still on track for that. Um, we're still right if, you know, budgets and actuals are, are pretty close in line. But the last that I checked, we were, we were under budget, um, which is thankful there because we are, we're, our renovation schedule is, is ahead of schedule. Um, we did take some risk to evict more of the, the troublesome players, you know, early on. Um, that, dips our vacancy a little bit, but that sets us up for success also for the warm season coming up for, for, um, you know, um, uh, spring coming here. So, you know, we decided to to take that risk knowing that there'd be some seasonality, uh, that would create a little bit of a tailwind for us. So, um, and and we probably could have started distributions day one, you know, in, in all honesty, but, um, that's a faucet that I don't want to have to consider turning off you know, after you turn that on, you know, it's like, I, you know, so we, we decided to, let's just take a little bit of a delay on the front end of this, um, knowing that whenever we do start it, we, we don't intend to ever stop. So it, awesome. it sets six up and lets us take a little bit more risk with regards to vacancy, getting the, the bad actors out on the front end. So do you have, uh, some experienced partners, you know, who kind of understood that? Cause that's a, that's a pretty experienced, uh, play right there. You don't, typically hear something like that in in your first uh, syndication yeah for sure but between the the property management that we we brought to the market um, and the people that had been there i think there's there's already a collective 100 plus units that they already have in louisville you know scattered across you know some single family single fa- or residential multifamily as well as commercial multifamily um, over over 100 units uh, across i think it was like six or eight properties there's two people that live 10 to 15 minutes from the property. Um, we're really pleased with the proximity we have. Um, you know, there, there's another deal we where we're looking at and, and part of the reason that it failed for the previous owner was they didn't have boots on the ground outside of the property manager. And so that's, that's one of the first things that, that we consider now is we're looking at stuff in, you know, middle Georgia, North Georgia is like, who's going to be close to the property. And I don't count the property manager as, as being a, a sufficient answer to that one. So um, but yeah, so definitely a strong team I think for, for some of the people is either their second or third commercial multifamily in there. They're very, um, knowledgeable about the market had been doing it for, for over a year already, just in that one market. So. Awesome. I love it. Yeah. It's, it's always, you know, that's the biggest thing I preach in the beginning is, is partnering with the, with experienced, with an experienced team, right? Willing, you know, and I don't know what your percentage is and obviously, you know, we're not going to get into it, but be willing to take a smaller percentage. If it means working with experienced people, learn that because 
if you do that correctly, you're going to be able to scale up to eventually, you know, lead your own deals and, and, you know, kind of build that foundation. Um, but you have kind of teased it. Obviously a deal did not go to plan. Um, you know, and, and that's really probably where you learn the most from. So let's, let's get into that one, you know, uh, talk about that deal and then we'll kind of get into some of the valuable lessons that you learned. For sure. For sure. The, the last thing I'll say as far as, you know, lessons learned for your listeners on the deal that we did close is, um, expect delays if you're doing a loan assumption. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that will never sense. that will never be within the sixty day time period. So be sure to put, you know, the ability to kind of purchase extensions, whether it's fifteen day, thirty day. Uh, you know, just make sure they get deposited into escrow account. They're not just you know a, a fee that doesn't service you uh, towards the principal there. So um, that's their last lesson learned. But as far as the the deal that we did cancel contract on, um, that was one. This is in a Nashville submarket you know, probably 20 minutes from my, from my house, honestly, but, um, it was in, uh, if you're looking at Nashville, I'm going to, I'm going to just give you the path of progress here, but if you're looking at Nashville, um, you can probably tell by the interstate arteries where the path of progress is. Um, so it's the South side, Southwest, the Southeast, you know, they're, they're just really building everything out. And so this was, a. uh, a submarket on the Southeast part of Nashville, just along one of the, the interstate corridors. Um, and you know, me being here and I'm also connected with, with local business owners. And I, you know, I, I know very well, um, that the path of progress is feeding into the submarket. Um, so whenever we found out that, you know, we got a pocket listing from a broker, um, where they just want an easy transaction, they're representing the seller and they would be representing the buyer. They're going to do just fine. They don't need to push price. You know, the, the seller seemed reasonable on their strike price. They said, if you can come anywhere near, you know, this, you know, $4.1 million purchase price for 50 plus units. Um, you know, yeah, let's talk. And so we, I guess, you know, that was something that we were very interested in. Um, with it being a pocket listing, we had developed a strong relationship with a broker and I would say it's pretty easy. Um, you know, so they were hosting meetups uh, a couple times a month. Uh, you know, they were just trying to get engagement. They would hi- have uh, guests on some of their meetups and, you know, I just toss some softball questions, get, get the discussion going whenever it started getting dry or getting quiet. And that's just always present in their mind. And so, um, you know, whenever it came time for there to be a pocket listing, they sent it out to, you know, 10 of their best buyers. We were on that list. And that was, I was honestly, it was a big milestone for us. It's like, Oh, these do exist. Like, <laughs> uh, and so, um, you know, we, we analyzed it in quick order between, uh, you know, as I don't share business equity with an individual, but I call them a strategic alliance partner. Um, so we're, we're underwriting stuff together constantly. Um, so we underwrote it together, kind of poked and prodded each other's models, um, found a number that we were comfortable with. Um, you know, with the debt at the time, it seemed reasonable. We brought it to who we were pretty sure was the best um, buyer out of all the people that they sent the pocket listing to. And we formed a, a team around them. Right. And so we said, Hey, look, this is our, this is our findings with the market research. This is our underwriting, you know, this, and he was like, okay, well um, I see you're conservative here, here, and here, and here. Um, and then he's like, I like the deal, you know, sleep on it. I'd like to be a part of the team. Um, and so we came back to it the next day, you know, it's like, all right, yes, you know, we didn't even need to sleep on it. Yes. We want you on the team. He's like, great. What do you need from me? I was like, we need an asset manager. Um, you know, and so, and, and he's like, all right, I got a guy. And it was just really quickly. It was just a, a team assembled, uh, within a week that this was put together. And so, um, we received it on Sunday with it by Thursday, we had the team assembled, had our purchase price. And then by the next Sunday we were under contract. Wow. And so, um, and, and the, one of the, the, one of the guys did visit the property, but, um, 
you know, and, and everything was looking good, you know, and, until, uh, and it, I guess we were, were doing, you know, we had our, our, our periods, right. Where we could, it was non-refundable. Um, it was not hard money. So it was refundable earnest money. And so we we're just, all right, well, let's, let's get this on the table and get moving on it. And, um, and so we started the due diligence period. We we're getting the plumber, the roofer out there for, you know, inspection day, um, about the time that we, are going out for inspection, we start to get their account receivables. Uh, you know, they're, and we started to find out that, Hey, there's actually a lot of delinquencies going on here. And, uh, and maybe this was the first, my lesson learned in all this is that was the first question we should have asked for, um, even before going under contract is, you know, let me, let me see updated AR please. And so, um, what we uncovered about the, the, the owner in this is that it was a single owner, in California, uh, they had syndicated the property. They did not have local boots on the ground. And based on the inspector that we had come out that day, he was also the inspector two years prior whenever it transacted. And he was like, it's the same. It's all the same. I could literally give you the same inspection report. Everything's just a darker red now because there's been zero improvements to the oh, property. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, and so it really made me questions like, okay, did he have a business plan? Um, and so there's, there's all these red flags that keep going on in my head around just from an operator perspective of like, if, if he's my peer, like I would have not, I would not have behaved like him, you know? Uh, and so, just interesting things to note along the way. And so I can, I can tell you what they did wrong as an operator and how it kind of came to be. Um, but the, the property management firm that they hired outside of Nashville, um, which was not a recommendation of the broker, by the way, they just went with lowest cost, um, more, just red flags everywhere, Jonathan, <laughs> uh, they hired a tenant that was at the complex to manage the property. Wow. Another red flag, right? Um, because they eventually missed a payment. They said, oops, I forgot to it. And then the the firm out of Nashville wasn't auditing bank recs. They weren't consolidating, you know, AR and uh, stuff like that. And so they were, it's getting to the point where the property manager was not paying rent. They were coaching other tenants, the roommates on how to not pay rent and just word spreads across neighbors. And so before you know it, um, they, they had about half the complex owing money, um, to the people and the, the PM franchise had no idea until we pointed it out to them. Um, or, or really start until we started talking about it, then the, you know, I say we, so the owner, the broker, you know, the buyers all discovered around the same time that there's basically fraud accounting fraud, uh, on account of the, the PM franchise, they had failed in their fiduciary responsibility there to handle money appropriately. And so, um, that really killed the deal because he syndicated, he really couldn't wiggle a whole lot on his strike, strike price. He's like, if I transact, it's going to be within this tight range here. Um, we were able to negotiate, you know, some stuff based off the physical inspection because it was just neglected for so long. But, um, that was, that was a, a tough one to swallow because there was just so much excitement behind it. Um, but thank goodness we had veterans on the team, you know, and they were kind of gut checking us. It's like, do you want to be in another deal six months from now? That's super easy. Like the ones that we're finding every day, or do you want to be, you know, stuck waist high in the mud, still trying to get through this. And, you know, um, so the, the, yeah, we, we ended up canceling contract on that the day of, you know, the last acceptable day of, and, um, yeah, a lot of lessons learned there, especially with regards to, you know, non-refundable earnest money. I would say that there's there's so many things that I would want to know um, about the the ownership team. 
you know, and like, do they, you know, what, what does their team look like? What was their strategy? Like, I'd love to see their, their investment summary. If they syndicated, like, are they ahead of schedule or are they just running out of capital? Like, I really want to know more about the circumstance. Um, whereas I think most people will say, I really want this asset. I'm going to put non-refundable earnest money down there. It's like, you need to know so much more <laughs> than just the asset. Uh, if you're going to do non-refundable earnest money, it's, it's not, you know, as prevalent in today's environment versus the super competitive environment that was 2020 through 2022. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a lot of lessons learned through that one that we had to cancel the contract on. Wow. That's quite the deal. Uh, nice to hear that it was, you know, I guess in uh, silver line that it was on, you know, the previous owner side, seller side, and and not, you know, a mistake that you guys made or, you know, not able to raise capital or, or something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. So able to get the earnest money back, you know, kind of wipe your hands and move on to the next one. Definitely a bummer, but um, wow. A lot sure. of great lessons to take there for sure. Uh, how, what's changed in your kind of underwriting due diligence sort of pre, you know, even pre PSA has anything changed in that for you guys on the, on the acquisition side? I'd say so. Yeah. AR updated accounts receivables is, is what we want before we even issue an LOI. And so some, sometimes the, the timeliness is a challenge for that. If, you know, there's, Hey, there's a call for offers in a week and, you know, I, I can't get it to you in that time, but you can kind of piece together what economic vacancy is by effective rents and, and things of that sort. So depending on, on what's presented versus is this, are you dealing with someone that has receipts on a napkin, you know, type, type set up there. So, um, accounts receivables, um, today and for a lot of the markets we're looking at, we're seeing pretty much just older product coming to market. And so we're asking more questions about infrastructure, like, electric and plumbing related. So, um, not to say I'll never do a, you know, a product that's built in the fifties and sixties. Um, you know, ideally it would have already gone through a major gut rehab, um, where all the aluminum was replaced with copper and all of the either galvanized steel or cast iron plumbing was replaced with pecs. So we, we want to factor that in on the front end. We don't want to get under contract, tear, tear a wall down and be like, Oh crap, it's galvanized steel, you know, Oh crap, it's cast iron. Um, cause that is, that is a six figure, um, rectification, <laughs> you know, and that, that affects your returns and, and that lets you know real quick how serious the seller is about selling or, or how, how serious they want to stick to their price. Um, you know, as far as how else we've pivoted over the past, uh, 18 months, it's, um, I'd say market has affected it. Also, you know, if, if you talk about, um, you know, cap rate expansion, I think, you know, the, the tertiary markets, the rural markets are probably going to go back into, you know, the seven and eight plus cap rates. Um, cause they're not going to have that, that debt that can justify, you know, going down to five or six. Um, so we're, we're looking more at primary secondary markets. We're asking ourselves a lot of, um, do we think that there's still going to be hype in this market five years from now? It's hard to say yes to that to tertiary markets. And, and uh, you know, if I'm being a fiduciary of other people's investments, then um, I don't I don't like the situations where it's like, hey, there's this Ford plant going in the middle of nowhere, you know, buy into the hype behind that. And it's like, show me that there's already organic um, population growth and draw to it. Don't 
don't try to sell me on a population 10,000 town and tell me it's going to be 15,000 in two years. Um, so I'd, I'll let other people, you know, be the pioneer. If it, if things are looking good and healthy, then, you know, maybe I'll buy a second or third in, in a market like that. But um, yeah, so we're sticking with primary secondary markets currently. Um, and within close proximity to that, uh, you know, we look at median income, uh, not just for the, the city, but like by tract. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but like median income by tract is very telling. Um, and so that you also make sure that the demographic can support the business plan that we have and within the one, three, five mile radius there. Absolutely. I love it. Expand on that, um, median income by track for, for the listeners. For sure. For sure. And, and I don't know exactly how that they're broken up, but within any sort of, um, you know, city there's broken down, uh, breakdown of County breakdown of districts. Um, and then there's also a breakdown by tract. Um, so, and if you're looking in Dalton, Georgia, there's probably going to be 20 different tracts around the city, you know, some within the, the city, the downtown city center, uh, also expanding inward and outward. And so, um, you can kind of see where, if there's median income growth, on, you know, in any direction of the track, then you can kind of uh, probably assume that, Hey, those are, that's the path of progress. If you want to draw some conclusions like that, um, you know, there's probably also uh, a correlation between median home price, but that's easily searchable through like Zillow or something like that. So, um, but that idea there is the median income track gives us a much smaller mileage um, to look at whenever we're trying to understand the actual demographics within, uh, you know, a submarket or a neighborhood, um, something of that sort. Um, so instead of me saying, oh yeah, median income for Dalton is $68,000, but I'm buying, you know, a neighborhood uh, to the east of the downtown area where median income for that tract is actually closer to 38,000. Can you really withstand, you know, your business plan of trying to push rents to $1,500 a month when really, if you have that three times income kind of rule there, then they need to be making 45,000 to $48,000 median income. Yeah. I really love that you made, uh, gave that example. That was a great example, uh, for the listeners to keep track at home because, it can be hard to understand why you would want such a nuanced piece of data, but you nailed it right on the head, right? A one, I mean, depending on where you're at, one block radius could be the difference between a 60, you know, 48 to 60 and, and 38,000. And, and that can be the difference, like you said, between whether or not, you know, the demographic can sustain your, your business plan or not. So, so I love that. And, and that's an awesome detail and kind of the details that you learn as you go. And, and so what, um, you know, kind of pull out your, your muddy uh, crystal ball here. What does it look like for the next kind of 12 to 18, 24 months for you guys? For us, uh, generally speaking, I think there's going to be a buy opportunity. Um, what, what I don't know though, and, and I'm super excited about that, but I don't want to like downplay that. I'm, I'm pumped. I'm like, I feel like I've been waiting for this moment for years. Like, yeah, finally, um, I just don't know what it's going to take, honestly, for the, you know, we're in price discovery mode right now where sellers aren't really um, wanting to sell at a price that aligns with um, the cost of new capital and the cost of new expenses. And, you know, it's not just insurance and taxes we need to worry about, right? It's energy too. Um, cost of repairs, labor, all that's kind of going northward. Um, and so, are, you know, how long can there, can it last of sellers kind of living in the past, so to speak? Um, you know, I'm all about people getting paid and getting top dollar for their product, but it's just, you know, there's so much, um, there's not a lot of transaction right now, um, just because there's not the alignment. But uh, what I do think is going to happen is that there will be buy opportunity. What I, and I have, I have a hypothesis, so I'm really glad you asked me this question. Um, so I think that 
um, for the people that are in trouble, right? Because I think most people that are in trouble right now are, is because of variable rate loans. And so are those, are we going to see those come to market? is my question, right? Or, or are they going to hide behind a curtain? Um, you know, and so I, I've heard of some situations where there's a bank that knows an operator is kind of failing, right? Their, their, their reserves are dwindling over time. And they're, you know, there's basically REO operation for, um, you know, two and 300 unit complexes where they're tapping the shoulder on, on one of their, their friends, who's, you know, large multifamily operator say, Hey, you know, the bank is saying, Hey, this guy's in trouble can you buy him out, you know, for, you know, 70 cents on the dollar kind of thing. Um, here's, here's everything about the property. Um, they're struggling. They probably got about six months of reserves less. Is there anything we can do? And so there, there's situations like that, where it's kind of a friend of a friend, you have to already be in the space to, to get, you know, to get exposure to that type of stuff. Then there's other situations where if a, if a bridge lender or an alternative, uh, debt fund manager, um, made the loan, then they're probably one phone call away from a syndicator or, or another multifamily operator. So they may just own the asset and have someone else manage it for, you know, whatever asset management price there is um, foreclose on the, the existing owners. I don't, I don't think it'll, if it gets that bad, then that's, that's not good um, for whoever the operators are. Cause that's how you, that's how you, that's the only way you can lose money. Um, but hopefully the, the instances where that happens, people can navigate maybe refinancing, getting into a different debt product, cash in refinances, you've heard of that term, um, or just trying to extend their uh, interest rate cap for their their debt product. Um, so I think that there's going to be a lot behind the curtain that we don't see. I think that there will be uh, a misalignment for a long time um, between the sellers and the buyers. And so I don't think we're going to see discounts nominally, but we may see the opportunity represented more in terms of inventory. Like there's going to be inventory sitting on the market and they just will not sell until it, heat, it hits their strike price or, you know, to where their investors are made whole. So, um, we, we, we were talking a little bit before this, but, um, loan assumptions are kind of the only things that make sense justifying and, you know, yesteryear's price. <laughs> um, but if we have to source new debt, then there has to be substantial discount and, and, uh, sellers don't want to give that. So. Gosh, I love that explanation so much. You really, uh, I, I completely agree. I will be very curious to see, you know, you go to these conferences and everyone's like, oh, you know, by Q3, like you're going to, and it's like, but will we really, you know, <laughs> because you obviously see, you know, how many operators there actually are out there. And there's a lot of really good operators and, you know, some of these operators have been in the same market for 10 plus years and have all the relationships. And it's like, you know, the brokers aren't going to send this stuff out to market when a distressed seller is there. They're going to go right mm -hmm. to a team, like you said, that they know could, you know, first, that's going to be their first option. Hey, I know a team that is set up and and can hopefully help us out here. And, and you won't even hear about it, right? It'll be a whole back channel mm -hmm. deal and that's it. So that will be something to to definitely keep an eye on, or there could be so much that stuff does go to the market and, you know, it's, uh, it's a bigger, bigger deal than we think in terms of, of quantity of, of bad debt from what it sounds like. That's what everyone makes it sound like. It's going to be like, not necessarily some free fall free for all where anybody can step in, but you know, there's a lot of potentially bad debt out there that may be in trouble. So um, definitely something to keep an eye on. 
For sure. Yeah. That, I think there's a, a saying that's getting made popular of survive to 25, <laughs> yep. you know? So if, if you have a loan, a variable rate loan product that can survive until then, you're probably okay. But, um, if you have to transact and, or if your loan's coming due and you know, this year, next year, then that's going to be a tough spot to be in. I don't envy anybody that that's in that position. Yeah, absolutely. I've been talking to a few other people who are kind of newer to the industry and, and we were talking about how it, uh, as challenging and as many kind of, you know, headwinds as there are right now, it is kind of nice getting in now and, and getting exposed to it because you're learning how to do it correctly. Right. So that like, yep. you know, the low leverage and, uh, you know, having to raise more equity than normal and, and, you know, fixed rate debt and all of these things to where once things do ease up and, and the debt market becomes a little bit easier, you know, the deals are going to almost just feel like, you know, quote unquote easier, right. As opposed to these operators who got in the last couple of years, well, they're the ones who are, are going to be in the most trouble because, you know, it was just bridge debt left and right. And, yeah. and uh, you know, so as challenging as it is, it does feel nice from that standpoint. For sure. There was a, a meetup um, that I co-hosted uh, a gentleman with, and um, he was, you know, mentoring student uh, out of a, another ecosystem. And he was the only person I heard say, I don't know about this bridge debt stuff. And he didn't do a deal for two years. Right. And so it's, it's one of those things where it's like, um, you can either try agency that's a hundred basis points higher than that stuff and not do any deals or, you know, you, you get into that product. So it's like, it doesn't, doesn't surprise me, you know, uh, why, why the markets, the, the, how it got there. Um, just given with how aggressive the the lending terms were there. Um, but you know, I feel like he was the only smart guy <laughs> in the room at the foresight to know he'd been in it for so long that to know that the further away you get from the fundamentals of buy a cash flowing asset with long-term fixed rate debt, um, the more risk you're taking on. And, uh, you know, it seems like, you know, Today we had the the hindsight to think that the bridge lenders were playing chess while the buyers were playing checkers. You know, so interesting yeah. time. So, but uh, you know, people ask me, it's like you know, I hear real estate is is going through some turmoil right now, and is um, where where's the opportunity? And I tell people that you'll never find opportunity if you're not looking for it. That um, is so a the, fact. So we've, you know, leveled up our, our underwriting. We've really gotten sharp on our expenses. And so I think we're, we're well poised to take something down. Um, you know, the, the challenge right now is, is finding something that makes sense. Totally. This is what I've been preaching, um, you know, especially on this podcast is for those who want to get involved, it's important to understand your market right now to get involved in your market now so that, yep. you know, I, I joke tongue in cheek, but you know, a good deal could kick you in the side of the head and you wouldn't even know it. <laughs> if you don't under, like, if you don't even understand your market, you know, so it's important to understand now so that when the good deal does present itself, you know, it's a good deal and, and you can jump on it because, you know, whatever does happen, whether there's a lot or, you know, it's all back channel stuff, it's going to go quick. I do believe that. I think there's a lot of capital yeah. that's been sitting and waiting. And, and I think that it, um, they'll move quick. For sure. For sure. Awesome. Well, Tommy, this has been absolutely amazing. Appreciate all your insight. Uh, I know the listeners do as well. Uh, we'll wind down and jump to the final five. First question, best advice you've gotten from a mentor? Uh, patience is a virtue. I think, uh, you know, and, and I'll, I'll uh, add on to that and saying that a um, no deal is better than a bad deal. Yes. 
right? Or, or they say sometimes the best deal is the one you walk away from. Mm-hmm. You know, that's uh, I love that. Uh, what is it about your career that makes you feel like you're fulfilling your why? Uh, for for me, I I get to to sleep easy at night. That's for sure. I'm not. Um, I had a friend that he worked in um, in an AI for a gambling company, and he's like, I just. I'm not aligned with the mission of of taking advantage of people and taking people's money, but for for what we do, and you know, as a multifamily syndicator, um, you know, we're improving the desirability of a neighborhood, yes, but also through safety, we're increasing the security of a place, we're making it more desirable, or building up a community together. Um, and so, for for what I get to do, whenever we actually do take an opportunity down and find an opportunity that aligns with us, um, I know we're doing the right thing and we're getting paid for it. Um, there's so many times where it feels like I'm not. Doing Doing the right thing i'm getting paid for i won't say so many times say, that's never really happened but it's just like there, there's jobs out there where it doesn't align with your your core um and thankfully this is definitely something that that aligns with my core um so yeah that's awesome i love it uh favorite non-real estate or investment related book um not non-investment related as well yeah right Okay. I would, I I do have an answer for this one. It's pretty fun, but, um, there's a book out there called story worthy and the, the premise it's, uh, you know, it builds upon the narrative that within every single day, there is a five second moment that you're, you go through an evolution or your affirmations are, you know, reaffirmed. Sorry for that. Um, you know, or, or you, you change your mind about something that you thought to be long, you know, long-term truth withstanding, um, right. You, you grow as a person personally, professionally, right. There's a five second moment in every single day, um, you know, spiritually with, you know, with your wife or with your spouse, what have you. Um, and so, but you, you'll never see it if you don't live presently. Um, and so part of that is a combination between, you know, having the capability to still tell a story properly, to do that five second moment justice and go through that evolution as a, as a protagonist, um, in your story. Uh, and and then, yeah, living, living life and, and being present and aware of it. Absolutely. Very well said. Uh, definitely, definitely one of the more challenging things to do, right? Obviously we've got so much going on or can't have so much going on, but very, very important. Uh, love that. Uh, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? Um, I, I go through, I go back and forth with this every time I go on a long road trip. Um, it, it's either the ability to teleport or, um, be like Magneto and control magnetic objects. Cause I just want to like move the cars out of the way or like get to where I'm going. Um, you know, which, which kind of goes against what I just said of, you know, living life for the journey and not the destination. So maybe I, I conflict myself, myself a little bit there. <laughs> oh man. That's funny. Yeah. We say that until we have to go on a long road trip and then we're like, you know what? Uh, I'm actually here for the destination. Let's just get there. <laughs> traffic's a real killer (laughs) oh that's funny yeah hard to live present when you're stuck in traffic (laughs) oh that's great uh cool what's the best way for people to get a hold of you and learn more for sure for sure yeah and and i'll preface this by saying that you know i I wouldn't get to where i am now without you know 
other people taking, you know, sacrificing time of their day to add value to me, whether that's your expertise as a, or a mentor, or, um, you know, books to recommend. And so, um, I was thinking about what is, what is something I could do to give back. And so, um, I wrote the book called the passive investors guide to the multifamily universe. And so that's a, I made that a free download. Didn't want to monetize any of that. So that was my way of giving back to the universe, but you can find that on my website of tbcapitalgroup.com, like Tango Bravo Capital Group.com. Awesome. We'll link that in the show notes, make it super easy. I love that. Um, that is, will be a, a great resource. So I appreciate that value a lot. Tommy, thank you again. This was absolutely amazing. For sure. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. Absolutely. Thank you again for tuning in. Who do you know that wants more cash flow? Share this episode with them so you can grow your cash flow together. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you're subscribed on your platform of choice so you never miss a new episode. Go to KataniCapitalGroup.com to learn more.